Thanks for tuning in. I'm artist Gillian Knight, creator of Art Fictions. Just before we get on with this episode, I'd like you to listen to this. Are you ready? You're right. It was nothing but silence. Actually, it was the sound of my kitchen. And that's what you get on this podcast when it comes to advertisers. I'd love to keep art fictions free of advertising, but it means we rely on our listening community to help fund production, which is currently mostly done by yours truly, for free. However, if you'd be so kind as to visit patreon.com slash artfictionspodcast, you might contribute a little helping hand with outsourcing for the monthly cost of a cup of coffee at London prices. Mere pennies, if they were to still exist. You can become part of the Art Fictions community and given time, I hope to have exclusive offers available. Let's get back to what we're all here for. And I'm going to start this with a very short recap of what this podcast is all about. I'm a believer in conversations as a way of opening up and sharing ideas. I also think there's a huge range of accomplished artists who deserve more acknowledgement and a huge range of listeners who want something more than big media, which focuses on celebrities and maybe a little less than academic analysis that can get a bit beyond ordinary reach. Or maybe that's just me. Though I'm not alone in this, you know, Elizabeth Fullerton, author and art critic, has also joined me before and will be picking up the hosting baton in a couple of weeks. And there's more hosts to come throughout the year. But for now, my guest artist today is the abstract painter Katie Pratt. And we are going to talk about the disorganized surface, organic and geometric, the French Alps, industrial revolution, the massive strike actions across UK industries right now, for good reason, sharing of the planet's resources, how communities might organise themselves and the myriad of invisible and complex systems that structure our lives and Katie's paintings. Hello, I'm artist Gillian Knipe, creator of Art Fictions, which explores the stories of art and the art of stories. My guest today is the abstract painter, Ms. Katie Pratt, who has selected a fictional book for us both to read and kickstart our conversation. We'll be winding our way through the text, its characters and ideas, then eventually arriving at what's going on in Katie's studio. Welcome to Art Fictions, Katie. Nice to be here, Gillian. (laughs) For our discussion today, you've chosen the novel Once in Europa by John Berger, which we were just discussing. I have bought, it's actually an ex-library book, which I bought from World of Books, secondhand. The best. The best. Uh, By way of introduction, John Berger also wrote Ways of Seeing, which was based on his television series, which aired in the 70s of the same name. Uh, In this, he challenged the traditional art criticism by focusing on how we look at paintings in order to make a more meaningful evaluation. He also wrote very widely, and Katie's read a lot more than me. I have read A Painter of Our Time, though, which... um, Rosalind Davis, who was my first guest ever uh, on the podcast uh, a few years ago, uh, she chose that. So I am somewhat familiar with John Berger, although he's he's quite a British character, um, isn't he? Well, except that he lived in France. He was he was British, but he was a, an expat. Yes, yes. And we will talk a little bit more about why he moved to France. So, Once in Europa is the second book in the Into Their Labours trilogy, which traces the journey of the European peasant from the mountains to the metropolis. So, in other words, you know it's going to end badly from 
moving from one state of poverty to another. Uh, it's a collection of interwoven short stories in which a traditional alpine village collides with the future-driven urban culture. Katie Pratt, why did you choose this book? Well, I chose it because in my mind I thought it was important to have a writer that I'd binged on and I wanted it to connect to my practice obliquely but not directly and um, I thought it was very timely because the day that we're recording today, the 1st of February, there's most big unions in the UK are on strike. Hurrah! There's a big... um, uh, drive towards um, collect collectivity amongst workers in most of Burge's work. Um, he believes in workers' rights, and this book has industrial accidents at, as part of the um, major feature of what happens in it, and um, and also because it connects to my own sense of identity so I suppose I read it for the first time maybe 10 years ago and it was when the whole kind of we should have an in-out referendum debate was going crazy and um, my family were emigres from Central Europe and this sense of borders being a recent and an artificial um, construct is something that um, was really prescient in my kind of consciousness at that time. So, you know, I feel like my centre of gravity is in Central Europe rather than in the UK. And if it is in the UK, it's in London. Mm. So did you... But you've read all the books, right, in the trilogy? Mm. All the books in the trilogy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I do find when you read all... I've read a lot of his books, but then a lot of these kind of essays, some of the books are more kind of have more of a kind of essay form than a kind of fiction form. And you do end up reading the same chapter twice in different books. So I I cut down and started reading other stuff after a while. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this is the thing with John Berger. I find his writing a little bit clunky. You know, he'll he'll be writing in a very descriptive, you know, this happened, then that happened way. And I think, oh, it's a bit dull. And then he'll turn it around and there'll be some complete gem. So, so part of the clunkiness for me is his overuse of the word buxom yes. to describe the women. Uh, there's a few outdated things. It was the same things. woman that he kept using that word for. Though. Oh, okay. But yes, <laughs> yes, point taken. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And also, you know, as I've said to you before, I think that he's a product of his um, time and culture. And um, I also think that his work generally is really kind of heterocentric. And, you know, it's very Eurocentric as well. Um, But then, you know, he was predominantly writing in a time before global travel was uh, very accessible. Yeah, absolutely. And just as he wrote A Painter of Our Time, he was a writer of his time. But it is somewhat appropriate that your copy of the novel has a bum on it. Yeah. (laughs) But then he turns around and uh, there is a poem about... It's not just a bum, it's a lady bum. It's a lady bum, that's right, is it? A beautiful lady bum, I will say. <laughs> Whereas I, I've got a very serious uh, book cover with a map. He does write a beautiful poem in the beginning called The Leather of Love. And he does write about, uh, there's one of the characters, Boris, and he says, it was as if at the moment of his conception, every one of his cells had been instructed to grow large, but his spine, femur, tibia, fibula had played truant. 
which is such a great description. As a result, he was of average height, but his features and extremities were like those of a giant. Yeah, and then all of a sudden he's incredibly eloquent, which I find quite funny. I find him very humanist as well, that he's got a great sensitivity for how humans connect, but also, you know, the human condition, the transience of life, and in animals as well. He's written a lot about animals as well as humans in in this book, but he's even written a book about animals, how, we, how to look at animals or something like that. Yeah, so I, I think that he has a kind of insight which he is very deft at articulating into um, what it feels like to have a selfhood, whether it's a human selfhood or a bovine selfhood. Or it, I find it a bit presumptuous when he talks about how women think and how women feel, mm. but I suppose if I were... Well, some people say I am a cow, but... <laughs> <laughs> not me. It's not what it's like to be a cow at all. <laughs> Well, speaking of that sort of that empathy, insight, um, respect that he has, he, he didn't just theorise, did he? In fact, it was really important to him to not be uh, living life a, as a theory in the same context that uh, Karl Marx wanted philosophy to become a reality because John Berger, of course, moved to France for, what was it, and lived on a farm, worked on a farm? He lived and died in France. He lived in the Alps where France borders Italy. It's certainly where this trilogy is set. And I think he died in Paris. Yeah. As a result, he needed to, in a way, be able to balance that notion of his opinion, his uh, leanings towards communism. Uh, I mean, he mentions the Communist Party newspaper several times through the book. But one talks about the newspaper, one talks about a Communist Party meeting, and another one talks about a guy who is a communist. Yes, yes. So you read that ten years ago. You said, oh, I'm not I sure if I remember. Yesterday. I read it again yesterday. <laughs> you can remember it better than I can. Well, I, yeah. So, there, so there's that sort of opinion, but there's also the... Uh, the story, he creates a story. And so there's that lived experience. And also, I mean, I, w- I would say it's an alternative to academic writing. You know, he's extremely informed, but he wants the writing and his television show, for the fact that he did a television show that appeared on the BBC, he wants to be accessible. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want to be a theorist mm-hmm. up in the clouds. Yeah, and also I think that that TV series was a response to uh, uh, Clark. So what was Clark's... Well, he was what, very what, what kind was of, the challenge? Uh, well, I'm no art historian, so I'm, I mean, I've, I've seen both series um, and I've read both their work, but um, I think it, the problem with Clark was, again, it was a product of its time and it very much didn't kind of challenge, you know, all artists were men and they're all European, as opposed to maybe inquiring into whether it's just those of the artists that got the exposure and the provenance rather right. than yeah. those yeah. of the makers, and why other you know why people uh, don't make artwork where when they're on the um, margins of uh, hunger mm. on the breadline. Um, I wanted to say when you were talking about um, how. Um, he didn't want to kind of be a theorist so much, but he wanted to live his work. I wanted to say that um, in the introduction, you use the word peasant, and it does crop up quite a lot in the book. And, you know, that's the kind of word that uh, 
we now would find really derogatory and it's the kind of thing that you can term you can use as an insider um, and I think also um, that by living in the community and living your politics is the best way of preaching rather than kind of telling everyone else how they should live and I think that that's uh, one of the messages you kind of get from Berger that and um, not everything goes as planned you know you can set up a, a set of structures uh, social structures and um, uh, make contingencies but it doesn't mean that they're going to go your way yeah I mean are we talking about John Berger now or are we talking about now practice <laughs> well both well that's the reason why I picked it you know yeah. because that's how I think about art practice but yeah I was talking about Berger yeah yeah and uh, how very many of the characters um, just get bad luck that, that you know they, they they play by a set of rules or they break the rules and things you know things don't come out in expected ways but you know that is how life is you know some people get break after break and other people set themselves up to succeed and other people set themselves up to fail but some people set themselves up to succeed and still fail yeah and vice versa yeah although you know that's part of what he's describing in terms of the village life is um you know he he, he brings it to the ideas around love uh, and loss and there's a lot of love and loss um, in fact there's a lot of sadness throughout because he depicts these characters uh, for instance I, I can't remember the name of the guy in the first story I think it's Philippe and Felix, Felix. and Felix is um, lives with his mother and he's not married and he has no prospects oh it's Philippe is I, th I think the cheesemaker who, who's gonna yeah. um about to be married and uh, you know and then his mum dies and then he just has no one and that, at the end you know and it's really sad and, there's and a lot of that that goes when on he's through running the book. a farm single-handedly yeah um, he has even less time because he has to do more work yeah that's right so there's no prospect of any kind of girlfriend or relationship and there's there seems to be quite a lot of isolation of these characters well, actually that chapter does have a slightly optimistic end because he gets out his accordion plays it in the farm and then people come to him that's true although it's quite funny that it's really sweet because his dad says to him you know it's time you got a rifle and learned how to shoot yes. <laughs> he says actually i'd rather have an accordion <laughs> which is brilliant um well and his dad went with it yeah uh, and and it worked out for him in the end uh Actually, speaking of that story, the uh, that also depicts, I think, a great thing that uh, Berger does, which is he's he's not living in some sort of wafty idealistic zone. For instance, he he's back onto um, Felix when he's playing his accordion uh, during the wedding procession. He says each woman had removed her stole. And the white linen undulating in the wind caressed the bare shoulders of the woman behind her. A mist covered the hills. A cowshat 
when he ceased playing, a pungent smell of wild garlic wafted towards him. So... Is this a scene that's a hallucination or a scene that's an actual... Because when they talk about gypsies coming, that's, those are metaphorical gypsies, not, or a, not metaphorical, they're kind of a imagined gypsies rather oh, yeah. than real gypsies. No, I think this was during the procession, which sort of got more, <laughs> the wedding procession, which got more and more yeah. weird, I think. Yeah. Um, but, there, I mean, there was another one with uh, Felix's mother dies, Albertine, and uh, she's got everything organised, you know, what, yeah. what, what she's going to wear. She doesn't want people coming and being sympathetic towards her. You know, it's, it's a very grounded, down-to-earth, lack of idealistic, you know... You know when I was um, in primary school, um, we went to France on a coach um, for, I think it was an overnight, a short, a short trip. And I remember, I mean, it was like late 70s, but um, I looked out of the coach window and there was a woman carrying milk churns like 50 miles away from Kent. And I could not believe my eyes. Wow. Because <laughs> even in primary school in yeah. Maine, learned about milk ch- milk going in tankers and you know electronic milking systems and i suppose part of what you know this is actually set in the 1980s or 70s oh some of it's set in the 50s but it's it's spanning the second half of the 20th century and part of what is point is i think is the abject poverty in rural areas that persisted and still persists you know that there still are people who have kind of been technologically abandoned and um, while there are the kind of shishi people living you know living in the cities living nice bourgeois comfortable lifestyle there's still people who who have basically cows in their kitchen and um, uh, you know you're eating your your cereal and you can smell cow piss Mm. because a cow's pissing (laughs) the other side of the not even substantial wall. <laughs> that does sound astonishing, though, you know, like a little Vermeer vignette out the bus window. But he, he does make that contrast, doesn't he, between village life and the urban life. I mean, the, the, there's the main story, Once in Europa, is one of the stories, one of the short stories. And uh, in that... There's the factory. By the way, because the characters crop up not only uh, across throughout this book, but also um, they're traced through the um, trilogy. Oh, really? So the trilogy is um, this is the middle one. So it's also chronologically the middle one, and some of the characters get picked up in Lilac and Flag, and some of them come from. There are some references in there which are from Pig Pig Earth. Oh, okay. So are they? Is is it a, a sequence in time in terms of the whole trilogy, or are they? Because this this one you've got, say again, coming back to Once in Europa, you've got village life, and then you've got the factory that gets set up, and you've got the dad who's like, "There's no way, no way, I'm selling my my land to the factory people." Yeah, but uh, Jean de Florette. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and it. Uh, actually, there was a lovely one as well about the doctor, um, where it says he'd come straight to the village from medical school, full of idealism. Now, after ten years, he was disillusioned, 
Mountain people did not listen to reason, he complained. Mountain people drank too much. Mountain people never recognised a rational process. Mountain people behaved as if they thought that life itself was mad. But is there anything that you felt about that, about that sort of, you know, city, urban yeah. I think that tension. Um, part of what the, the, the trilogy does is um, chart the slightly late industrialisation of the rural margins of the Alps and similar European areas, um, the coming of the Industrial Revolution to these parts. Um, and of course you still need rural areas to feed the population um, well you still need farming to feed the population but um, because the first one is completely rural and the last one is actually completely urbanised in mm. the trilogy so I think that that's partly what it's about and this one is more the transition isn't it it's, yeah. yeah and um out of step with other parts of Europe, certainly. And the irony being it's called in Europa. But you would expect by 1985, say, um, Europe had become a kind of modern industrialised society. And I guess part of what the book is saying is not all of Europe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's so, they do talk about it uh, in the book, about the uh, pollution... Uh, and the sort of endless smoke from the factory, and that comes up in a lot in well, paintings uh, around the same time, you know, Lowry paintings. And, and also um, the lack of responsibility for industrial, um, as health and safety and industrial relations, what, exactly what we're seeing in the news at the moment about industrial relations being all the workers' fault. Uh, you know, coming from free marketeers, where you kind of go, well... They're withdrawing their labour. It's a market. It's a market transaction. You're not paying them enough, so they're not working. Mm. You know, you free marketeer capitalist people. <laughs> yeah, I saw the uh, the uh, film last night actually about uh, Nan Golden, and it was uh, I think it's called All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, and it was about the Sackler family and their name actually probably they ought to go into anonymity so probably you shouldn't even mention them but you know the connection with the opioid crisis and well they started it really but the um the fact that they, their name has now been taken off um all the big institutions from the guggenheim to the Tate, I think the V&A was about the last one, but I did walk out of the cinema thinking, more strikes, more, 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 more. Um, and there are powers that be that want, obviously, less, 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 or, or none at all. Can I say one last thing about the book? As Absolutely. Well? I wanted to say that um, I identify with the mountains because it was where my um, mother's family originally came from, not France, but Germany. Oh, okay. So uh, I spent a lot of time in the Alps as a child, and um, it is very vivid to me. Anyway, this this kind not necessarily the communities because you know my grandmother was uh, born in Munich, like in the city, not in the 
cow shed. Mm. <laughs> but, but a lot of the kind of um, the landscape, uh, certainly, and um, the rural, you know, gauging wealth by the, the amount of cow dung you have. <laughs> that kind of thing is very familiar to me. I don't want to go from shit to talking about your painting. Oh, that's fair but, enough. But <laughs> I think it's fair enough. <laughs> well, we get it. That, okay, that's a really low start. We're just going to elevate ourselves from there. Well, but it's I, very Berger-esque. Yes. <laughs> Keeping it real. I would like to now talk about your painting specifically. So, Katie, you're an abstract painter, mm-hmm. mostly known for your large paintings which feature dynamic colours and heavy volumes of paint. Your work is exhibited internationally including the 2020 John Moores and you won the Gerwood Painting Prize in 2001, the Thermae Bath Spa Commission as well and uh, both of us use organic and geometric details in our paintings though we arrive at these through very different means producing very different outcomes and of Mm. course uh, you have been painting for about 30 years and I've been painting for less sure. than 10. <laughs> uh, so, so, so that'll be another difference. Thanks for that, um, What's also apparent in your work is your complex diagrammatic systems. And it's, um, I mean, it always seems to me like the system is derived from an organic source. But I don't know what that source is, yeah. um, or even if you think of it as a source. So maybe you describe yeah. it in your words. Well, um, I could uh, say how that book relates to my practice, and I suppose um, it starts with you know the actual material of paint that you know you have to make the first gesture, rather than get kind of tied up in indecision. You know, it's like oh, let's just get on with it and chuck a big bucket of something at the surface or just get it down quickly and then you've got something to react to and also something that you might respond quite strongly against Um, but when you were talking earlier about um, how um, about the relationship between theory and practice essentially you know in relation to Berger Mm. and uh, living your living your practice rather than theorizing to me, um, how I organise the surface of this kind of messy, gunky, um, you know, gesture, hasty gesture, relates to what I'm think, how I'm trying to think through how we could share the planet's resources with all the beings that need access to them, and um, how communities can organise, how we can, you know, without damaging other life forms whether it's plants or animals or other humans or whatever it is ecosystems um, and uh, ecosystems are an example of complex systems and i'm interested in complexity um, and the other thing about the disorganized surface and just getting that kind of messy gesture down was partly a thing i noticed at art school about um uh Painters fetishizing their palettes, printers fetishizing their plates, and um, the kind of byproduct of a practice, and uh, kind of getting seduced by the materiality of the medium that you're using. And with paint, it's very easy, you know, if you're using watercolor and you see some kind of swirly stuff on your palette or 
um, you're trying to mix a colour and there's a really glorious kind of brush mark on your palette. That kind of chance accident is interesting, but it's only interesting if you can textualise it interestingly. In itself, it's just, it's just the material, just the stuff. And also it's a critique of abstract expressionism and the kind of machismo that goes with it, specifically Pollock, but not exclusively. Also, I could look at de Kooning with a kind of hard stare. <laughs> right, okay. Enough said. And, and so on. <laughs> and, you know. And also, when I was at art school, um, those American painters of the mid and late second uh, 20th century were really kind of high in our consciousness, you know, in our awareness. And it was all the white men that were promoted and now we're seeing great work from all kinds of people who never got any recognition in their lifetime or who did get a bit of recognition but it was kind of you know they were they had to play second fiddle to the guys the, the white, white guys, guys yes yeah. so can you talk a little bit more about that reaction to to that set of macho macho men in abstract expressionism that you are in some way responding to well i suppose one way to talk about it is in terms of determinacy and indeterminacy that if you think about jackson pollock you know rhythmically flicking that's a kind of affirmative gesture and i suppose I don't know whether what this has really got to do with gender politics, but I accept that, you know, um, he's bigger and uh, most people are bigger than me. Uh, <laughs> you are much taller. Um, we, yeah, we look like an ostrich and a sparrow when we stand <laughs> to each other. That's why you've got the high chair and I've got yeah. the low chair. <laughs> well, you are very tall, which is nice. Yeah, so I suppose... Um, it's a kind of man-spreading, isn't it, Pollock? It's a kind of visualisation of man-spreading, but also, you know, how Lee Krasner had to live in his shadow, certainly in terms of exposure. Let's, ta let's take that rhythm, for instance. I would see that you are beginning with something much more erratic than that mm. by these splodges that begin your paintings that, that are the starting point or starting yeah. points, and some of that is you directly uh, putting something on the canvas, but some of that is just accidental from what's gone on on another canvas in your studio that ends up uh, on its neighbour. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that it depends on which, you know, which decade, seeing as you've kind of said I've been painting for 30 years. So when I first graduated from the Royal College, probably I was much more interested in a single event and these days I'm probably much more inclined to paint a regular ground that has interference in it and look for stuff in that. Tell me more about that. I suppose you have to, you have to keep it moving, don't you? So once you feel like you have a vernacular, um, you want to expand that in some way. So you have to challenge something about what you've been doing because when there's a big splash on a canvas, like uh, John Bunker's Instant Loveland logo, 
there is a figure ground relationship and um and also because in a sense it looks angry and uh that's not necessarily what you want to be working on i I suppose that there's also a conservation issue well your work has to be handled very carefully in fact you create those you build your own crates to move it anywhere lots of artists do that (laughs) i know but i i I just couldn't be bothered i should probably change the way i painted maybe not in that sense then you've got your starting point and then you're in some way creating systems um, mm-hmm. on the canvas to I'm being very hesitant with my words here because I, I don't want to describe it as some sort of fixed thing like you're trying to make sense of, of those beginnings or create some sort of system uh, with them because you know that's got to be your words but you know I see things like changes and aversion and contradiction and I wonder about intention or whether you're trying to discover something along the way. Well I suppose the thing is that even if you have a system it's almost impossible to, it's it's set up to be fallible like we were saying about Berger, Um, you can have structures but they get breached by natural occurrences and also um, you, uh, it's very difficult to decide whether a regulation applies to something or not. Um, you know, to make that kind of uh, uh, jurisdiction kind of call, um, and uh, I suppose how I think about it more is is organisational and also deflecting the decision-making. I suppose I find being organised quite difficult and um, have made a decision at some point in my life that I would like to have an organised existence. And I guess you see that in my painting. It's about trying to find, uh, impose an organisational strategy on something that isn't that organised or that is is disruptive to me and... Um, uh, troubles me in some way and um, in so doing I invent these kind of processes which are complex and not only are they complex um, in their own terms but also they um, uh, are complex to execute that it's almost impossible to do it without um, tripping yourself up and uh, you know that that happens a lot in the real world, like ecosystems, like mm. political systems, like economies, um, the migration of wildebeest. All these are complex systems because there's various different factors acting on them that are outside of the system itself. So you set up a kind of like dumb thing for yourself, like circle every green spot in a orange dotted line, um, and then you're kind of saying to yourself well where's the where are the green spots is that a spot or is that more of a kind of slurp <laughs> and is that the tripping up that you're referring to that you start a system and then it sort of fails on itself or yeah. you well um yeah, the tripping up i suppose is that it's is the complexity that it's uh, got so many kind of by laws or um 
new you you encounter a new scenario like you've got to the brown lump so you know there isn't there isn't any kind of precedence for what you do when you get to brown lumps you have to then re you know write something new and um uh or you uh cut off if you're not allowed to cross lines then sooner or later you run out of space yeah so it sounds like when you describe it, it sounds like sort of organic computer coding or something yeah, like it, that yeah yes um one of my painting recent paintings is called cody yes i saw that <laughs> it's a, it's a digital, <laughs> i was thinking about digital coding uh i just tried to do a coding course quite recently actually and fucked up oh dear well i did coding as part of my first degree and i'm going to just admit here i was actually good at it but you're working continually on loops and closed systems so you're not doing what you're talking about but you i'm glad you brought it back to the sort of real life scenarios because you have said before that you do see the world through structures and through series of structures Mm. it's not like you're walking around functioning in the world and then going to your studio and functioning quite differently. It's a seamless thing in the way that John Berger and his work, his own writing pursuits and creative pursuits, the way that they work as part of his belief systems. Yeah, and uh, also as abstract painters, because you'll want to, and I've been to your studio and seen great work, you need to have some relevance beyond abstract painting other otherwise at best it's kind of postmodernism. you know it's um a referencing what's gone before but I, I mean for me you need to have uh, some kind of awareness of the world beyond and also coming back to the kind of gender politics of it particularly in Britain, in a way that you don't get in Central Europe or probably, I don't know, I've never been to Australia, but you certainly don't in the US, get so much kind of blind inability to uh, to transpose between media and to read abstraction, to think abstractly. It just doesn't seem to be a national trait for some, I, I don't know, in the UK, people are quite narrative have quite narrative thinking structures, it seems to me. That's my experience, anyway. And uh, I've heard of that spoken about before, actually. Yeah, yeah. the difference between Europe and, and uh, the UK and not in, that, just, in those terms. Not, I think also um, when you look at Islamic art, for example. Oh, sorry, yeah, of course. And what I was going to say is that uh, b- because there's this kind of work that's required from the viewer to just sort of make a leap between stuff they know and stuff they're looking at. And um, that may or may not be difficult, but um, quite often it's sort of like, well, you know, ladies decorate kind of thing. And it's seen as not having any content. Men, I know, (laughs) (laughs) non-women. Yeah. Um, other people like yes. um, also complain that abstraction is um, kind of marginalised and seen as not having content. But aside from um, that, I do think it's there is a kind of misogynistic impulse for women abstract artists, where even if there is content, it's it's about her emotions. Oh yeah, yeah. She's expressing that's herself. A, that's She's a, that's an emotional creature. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
dear. That's, do you do oh, that? Dear. Yeah. Are you an emotional um, creature? I've got some emotionals. That's true. It's true. Uh, but um, that's quite funny. Uh, uh, speaking of subject, when I look at your work, I'm thinking of marks on the wall, body cells. I'm going to give you my list. DNA structures, fabric threads, pathways, power boards inside a computer, landscape, microphysics, road systems, reeds, grasses. I mean, to me, that is the brilliant thing about abstract painting, but also its problem for a lot of people is what the fuck is it about? How do you talk about it? And uh, there's a certain... Um, sort of expansiveness to it, that it opens up all sorts of things that ignite your perception that you bring to the work, but also hopefully, you know, as a result of seeing the work, expand it, but you might not know how it does that, mm -hmm. even at any point in time, or you might know two weeks later, gosh, mm -hmm. that really reminded me of. And, uh, and you bring your own experience to it. Absolutely, so. yeah. The, you know, one of the things that you said, speaking of uh, Instant Loveland, which is an abstract painting platform run by John Bunker and uh, Matt Dennis, talking about or referring to Kandinsky, you said that, um, and I'm going to hold you to this because this is a quote, uh, abstract painting as representing a reality that was not observable in an ocular sense, that was nonetheless actually experienced and expressed here in an idiosyncratic visual language. And I guess what I'm in a very long-winded roundabout way getting to is this idea of subject and what the painting's about or, or, or what it's not about. Um, for instance, you know, if we look at landscape or figurative, the safety that we have in that is that we are given a signpost. Mm -hmm. It's more accessible to talk about where we know uh, what the artist is referring to. Yeah, I, I, when I was a student, maybe even an A-level student, maybe even, I hope it didn't carry on at art school, I can't quite remember, but uh, people used to say, well, you're not really abstract because abstract means you have to abstract something, like you have to paint a pot plant and keep, and then rework it until you dissolve the structure. Um, but actually, uh, we're talking here about autonomous abstraction, where you yeah. uh, paint something that is real but not visual. I mean, like, numbers, maths, is abstract thought, and mm. there's no such thing as the number one. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a way of describing something. It's a concept. It's not a thing in the world, but we don't really have any trouble accepting that. Or even a word, you know, like word. We know, got, we know what it is. <laughs> and that's been written about a lot, in, you know, by yeah. semioticians, uh, the sense of an embodied concept. But somehow when you try and describe it in brightly coloured oil paint, <laughs> that is glossy and slick and smelly, <laughs> um, and slightly annoying and slightly toxic, but very enjoyable. It has to be some kind of hedonism. There can't be any kind of cerebral intensity to it, which I just think is crap. Okay, good. Well, what about your painting then? Are you, is there intention? Are you looking to discover something? I want to see something that I won't see unless I paint it. And I want yeah. to be 
there's got to be a reason for bringing another painting into the world. So, uh, yeah, I have to contribute something to my own knowledge or um, ideally, you know, to my own knowledge, but um, hopefully um, to a wider kind of body of knowledge that, you know, other people will also go, you know, I've never seen anything like that, but I can still see how it got to be. Because if you can't see how it got to be, then it is just a pattern or a surface. And um, am I trying to discover something? Yeah, I'm trying to see something new. And I suppose what I don't expect to really discover is um, any dramatic revelations about painting per se, but I suppose I want to see it. Well, connections made that haven't been made before, maybe at least by me. What, what do you mean by that? I don't want to, um, it's not about making a discovery in terms of painting. Well, uh, you know, people always say everything's being done, which is a very mm. lazy thing to say. And yeah. Obviously bullshit, because we keep seeing all kinds of new things in, you know, it's like saying all oh, maths has been done or science has been discovered or something. Mm. People um, have said that. They've, yes. they've actually turned out to be wrong. Yes. But yeah. <laughs> but people still have questions. So, yeah. So, um, but I suppose, um, I suppose what you're looking for is incremental, this, you know, tiny little discovery is enough. Just the tiniest discovery. I, you don't want to have an earth-shattering thing that is... Um, well, firstly, there's no reason to expect it. And secondly, um, if you did have something that was so radical, so such a massive shift from what you've known before, then uh, you probably wouldn't be able to read it. It would be arbitrary, Yeah. perhaps, Yeah. maybe. So is the discovery within the work itself then? Yes. I mean, I get a lot of satisfaction from seeing my kind of thinking processes reiterated in other fields. Um, for example, one of my mum's... I've said this loads because it happened 20 years ago. But one of my mum's um, associates, colleagues, friends, I don't know, she took... She took them along to an exhibition I had in London and um, they said, oh, these are about organisational behaviour, I get these. Of course, I know Brilliant. at that time, certainly I knew nothing about organisational behaviour um, because they are about organisation and they are about behaviour, but not necessarily about institutions. That Yeah, that is really satisfying. I remember a story of um, Bridget Riley talking about that with a particular curve that she'd done and somebody came in who was a scientist, I don't know what sort of scientist, probably physics, was working on uh, trying to determine a, a particular curve and it took it had taken him months and months and there she was and then yeah. he walked in and saw it in her studio in a painting um so that'd be pretty marvelous I'd, I'd feel pleased about that well a lot of the language we use is very similar to the language of autonomous abstraction is very similar to the language of physics or maths you know the concerns the terms mm. um and i think there is a lot of potential for collaboration and a lot of the reading i do is around those subjects rather than around art theory or artists trying to sound cleverer than we really are. <laughs> of course we're clever. <laughs> now come on. We're as clever well, as we are. But there's, let's come back to the painting uh, just to round up because we're going to finish in a minute. I was interested as well 
in terms of the actual paint that's on the surface, mm -hmm. and we haven't talked at all about colour, and I don't even know what there is to say about colour, except thank goodness there's lots of it, and very confident colour in your work, which you know I love. But in the, in the book, there's a point where Odile says, and she's, she's um, talking to her son, are we Christian, a mother and child flying in the sky? At that moment, I was 29, Michelle was 37. If I'd been told as a child what the life of an adult is like, I wouldn't have believed it. I'd never have believed it could be so unfinished. I mean, I guess like an art practice, otherwise you would stop painting. But um, I was thinking about that groundedness of Burgess' writing and the flightiness that is also referred to. In fact, Odile's father says, you know, you'll never make a teacher because you're too up in the air. Wasn't yeah. the inference that some of it's written posthumously? It's either in her hands yeah, or Yeah, it's that's true. And there is the coming together of different times and different experiences in, in her life that are brought together in the book and one really hideous one about <laughs> some incident with her partner and uh, mixing that up with her and her dad, grafting the fruit trees. Oh, yeah. oh, oh God, God, that was hideous. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not... I, why did we go there? I went there, sorry. Yeah. Um, but let's come back to your work. So I was thinking of that about just in terms of weightiness and airiness and the idea of finished and unfinished. And, and I wanted to ask you about, do you think of your paintings in these terms? Because for me, yeah. the broken lines, the you know, ideas about weight and, and, and pushing and heaviness and lightness. Do you want to say a bit about that? I mean, yeah. the, the paint itself has a certain weight to it because it's so thick. And also it's slow drying because it's oil paint. So if you make it big enough, it will just drop off the canvas. The whole point about systems, not the whole point, but one of the points about systems is that I've always felt kind of formally, you know, redundant, not able to really kind of have the sensitivity of whether a line is the right weight, the right colour, and whether it's the right combination, because it's all so relative. So, you, you know, you, there are so many decisions to be made that um, I'm like a rabbit in the headlights and I can't make any decision. So by having a system, you kind of still are doing that, but it's uh, regulated and you make one decision and then that's that and you just do the painting and you are continually making decisions, but you're, you, in your mind you're not. And then the painting is kind of finished when the system's done what invariably happens is there's more of one than the other. So you have to come up with a kind of algorithm to make that work or a set of subclauses. kind of, that's the rule. And this is the rule that is ancillary to that major rule. Yeah. Which is a bit like programming, as I understand it. Then how, how are you choosing the colours then, if everything else is so systemised? Yeah, well, everything is a system in a way. Um, you know, figurative painting is a system, mm. you know, it's a system for seeing and representing and analysing, you know, analysing the vision, the the scene and schematising it into a two-dimensional surface. And I suppose one of the things I think about is um, how obtrusive, you know, how, how contrasting I want the colour relationship to be, what it's going to be like in volume and what it's going to be like um, in isolation, so where you have a tiny little mark in a big field, and then it re relates to what's gone before. 
Yeah, yeah. What, over what time are these produced? Because if this, if this was me doing your paintings, um, I would never do them as well as you, obviously, but uh, I would forget my system halfway through and oh, yeah. do, do another system. Yeah, especially <laughs> like um, at the moment, as you know, I've been spending January a lot at my laptop doing a lot of writing. And um, if you start a painting and then you spend a fortnight writing about someone else's work and then go back to your painting you've completely forgotten and that's part but even if you're doing it every day it kind of um evolves but then that happens in real life too like mm. customs practice um uh evolves culture changes the law changes you know you uh, and and also it changes regionally as well do you remember when you used to have to sign check after check after check, and uh, in the olden days, yeah, in the olden days, and your signature yeah. would would gradually change, or language changes with use. Yeah, it's just like life. It is just like life. Speaking of life or other people's lives, I'm just interested if there are any other particular artists that you feel are important to your practice, or that you've not so much the um, artists from the first artist that made a big impact yeah. on you or anything like that. But I mean, just somebody who you might return to or somebody who surprised mm -hmm. you recently. Mm -hmm. I know we both went to the Cezanne exhibition mm -hmm. separately, but separately. that was pretty amazing. Yes, and I wasn't expecting to enjoy that so much as I did. I very much enjoyed the Lee Krasner show at Barbican a couple of years ago. And I'm very interested in Vera Molnar particularly at the moment. I don't know her work. She was an early uh, computer artist. It's because I've been writing a project for a day's teaching I'm doing. Right. I'm a massive fan of Vermeer and have been since I was, um, you know, a student at the Royal College. What is it about his work? Well, partly because there's so few of them. He wasn't experienced and he wasn't professional. But the real thing that, uh, that um, interests me about it is the detachment between artist and image that there's this kind of objectivity from using um, a camera obscura from um, painting upside down. And there's nothing holistic about it at all. There's, there's no, well, if there is gesture there, it's tiny gesture. But equally, I really like Frank's house because there's so much gesture and uh, you completely suspend disbelief. It's impossible to look at a Frank's house without seeing these really kind of physical, formal, representations of people they look so vivid and then when you go up to the surface there's nothing there there's <laughs> just a few kind of flourishes and uh, brush marks well I'll i will find some references with your approval and i'll put them on the art fictions podcast uh instagram so you do a lot of writing and i know that oh, you do yeah. critical writing you write essays uh you work on the terps painting course but where can well, we see so. your work coming up You've got an exhibition coming up at Thameside, right? I'm curating an exhibition with uh, Peter Lamb, which opens in... What's well, that, the 22nd? 22nd, yeah. Where else can we see your work coming up? Um, working with Andrew Bick and mm -hmm. Jonathan Parsons on an exhibition that's in uh, northern Germany. Okay, brilliant. I think at this point I'm going to say thank you, listeners, and thank you, Katie Pratt, for being on Art Fictions. Thanks for inviting me, Julian. 
Thank you, listeners, and also thanks to today's guest artist, Katie Pratt. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the ideas that came up in this episode or about the program in general, then don't be a stranger. Just email me, artfictionspodcast at gmail.com. The unedited, filmed recording of Art Fictions was made by Andy Amashar and can be seen on YouTube at Cubit Community Radio. When it comes to this abridged podcast, the music was written and performed by Griffin Knight, while award-winning animator Joanna Quinn of Beryl Productions created our Jolly logo. If you'd like to support the series, please contribute via patreon.com slash artfictionspodcast. Happy listening, reading, seeing and making. Till next time.